Good morning, Grace. So before we get into the sermon this morning, there are just a couple things I want to bring before you uh, to, to make you aware of, of what's going on. So we're, we've begun a season of Lent, and as a community, we're wanting to engage uh, this season um, with some intent and, and in a meaningful way. Uh, and now this time in the church calendar, this time of Lent, um, is engaged by many Christians around the world. It's connected to the time of spring, but it's often engaged as a way to prepare, to journey with Jesus toward um, Holy Week, toward the cross and resurrection. And so as we are wanting to do this and as we are engaging this as a community, I wanted to let you know that every day uh, for the 40 days of Lent, uh, we are making reflections available to you. Those reflections are online, gracelb.org slash Lent. Um, and many different people from Grace are, are contributing to those reflections. And it's a way for us to engage God's word and to hear and listen uh, to what he might have to say to us in this time of preparation, in this time of acknowledging truly like our limits, acknowledging our need and our dependence um, upon God. Uh, and then also, as we look forward to Easter, one of the things I wanted you to know, or I want to invite you to consider, is that if you haven't been baptized, um, Easter is actually a wonderful time to be baptized. We're going to be doing a, a live, in-person, outside service on Easter, and we would love for you, if you have not yet been baptized, to be baptized. Now, baptism and Easter have been connected uh, together throughout the history of the church, because in baptism we are, we are entrusting and we are publicly demonstrating that we've entrusted our lives to Jesus. And we are, we are demonstrating that we are, are joining our lives, that our stories are joined with the story of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. Now, baptism is significant. Baptism is an important step of obedience in the Christian life. Uh, and so I, I ask you, if you have not been baptized, to consider it and to reach out. If you have questions about what baptism is, what it means, we would love to talk to you. Um, and if it's something that you, you simply know you want to do and you want to take that step of obedience, um, you can reach out. You can actually email me if you'd like, uh, dlong at gracelb.org, and uh, we'll put you in contact with someone or I will contact you and we can talk more about that. So those are just a couple of things as we enter the season of Lent, as we look toward Holy Week uh, and, and the cross and resurrection, wanted to bring those before you. But as we kind of enter into the sermon this morning, would you please pray with me? God, we are grateful for your kindness to us. We are grateful for your presence with us. I ask this morning that you would speak. God, I, I want to trust that you are a God who is always speaking, even in these types of ways uh, where, where we are listening in ways that, that are different than we would perhaps want or are used to, uh, but that you still are a God who is active, that you still are a God who is faithful to teach us, to show us, to reveal to us who you are, to reveal to us who you are calling us to be, as your people. And I ask that that would happen this morning. I ask that we would anticipate um, to hear from you um, out of your love and out of your grace and mercy. So thank you, God, for being one who speaks. Thank you, God, for being one who is faithful to be with us, to be near us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So for the next five weeks, and if you were part of the Zoom service last week, you, I hinted at this and, and you got a taste of it a little bit, as we are going through the book of Ecclesiastes for Lent. Uh, and because it's a really uplifting book, and it's, um, which is not true. It's a really complex, confusing, um, often sometimes frustrating book. Uh, but we're doing it because I think Ecclesiastes... Uh, tries to do something that's really fascinating. It tries to reveal or at least uncover, perhaps deconstruct various things about our lives, various ways that we search for meaning. And it does so um, in, in complex fashion. And we are going to be talking about that over the next five weeks, um, over the next five weeks of Lent. And I encourage you to read through the book of Ecclesiastes more than once and, and to engage with it, to um, be a partner in the conversation that it is inviting us into. And so over the next five weeks, what I'm going to be doing is be drawing out a few different themes uh, that arise in the book. Themes like, um, of course, life's complexity, themes of, of what it means to, to enjoy, uh, the things that get in the way of our enjoyment, uh, faith and doubt, but then also um, what it means to fear God and, and to live into obedience. And those, so those are the themes that we'll be exploring as we navigate through the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of jumping around and looking at various parts of it. But this morning, here's what I, what I want to do, is I want to talk about Ecclesiastes, what this book is, um, and also what it's trying to do, and then why we need to pay attention to it. So what is this book? What is it trying to do? And why do we need to pay attention? Those are the three movements of this morning's sermon. And so again, just by way of review, the book of Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature in the Bible. It's connected with Proverbs, connected also with the book of Job. Um, and, it, and it asks us to, to consider life. I mean, one of the phrases that you'll hear over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes is, is life under the sun. And much of wisdom literature is actually concerned with the things that we can see. The life that is before us. If we were to observe life, what are the things that we notice? What are the things that we see? How does life work? And that is what the wisdom literature is concerned about. It's concerned about things like, well, what is the good life? And then what does it mean to pursue that good life wisely? And then also how do our choices, how, do our, how does our character formation either help or impede our pursuit? of the good life. These are some of the things that, that wisdom literature is wanting to get at. Again, it's what, what they, they share in common is this interest in the way that life is, the way that life seems to be. It holds our face in front of the way things are, and it forces us to ask questions about the life that we live. Now, also, one of the things that, that these books of wisdom share in common is, is their connection between wisdom and our understanding of God. Now, in a few different places, in Proverbs, Job, and in Ecclesiastes, you'll hear this refrain, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or that fearing God is somehow connected to what knowledge is. And, and then as we look through at, at Ecclesiastes, as it moves toward the end of the book, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. So these, these wisdom books, this, this wisdom literature, is concerned with 
this connection between what it, what it means to be wise and what it means to understand who God is, and that we then live our lives in response to that very truth of who God has revealed himself to be, of what this life is intended to be as God created it and designed it. So why does this matter? Why does it matter uh, what type of book we're dealing with here in Ecclesiastes? Because again, as I already mentioned, it's confounding. There are places as you read through it, you will think, wait a second, is this what I'm supposed to believe? Um, Is this what I'm supposed to, to understand from this? How does all of this actually work together? What is, what is this writer attempting to convey? But if we remember that it's wisdom literature, then it all of a sudden brings up questions that we need to be concerned with, questions that we need to be asking. So what about Ecclesiastes is wisdom? How is it attempting to push us to be people who are wise? How is Ecclesiastes helping us or wanting us um, to understand about life and what it means to live wisely within it. These are the things that Ecclesiastes is concerned with, so it's important to know what this book is, this book of wisdom. But again, this wisdom comes to us in an interesting way. And so this morning, I want to spend some time looking Um, closely at the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes, again, drawing some things out about uh, what this book is, because we have two different types of summaries here at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, but we get a sense of what it's going to be doing. And so these first two chapters, this first chapter in particular, is very important to understanding the overall aim of the book, along with the very end. So I want to look a little bit at that this morning. So Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now here's one thing I want you to see, and that might not be so evident, at least if we're reading quickly, but I think it's clear, is that there are two speakers in the book of Ecclesiastes. We have here a narrator which we see at the very beginning, is going to be talking from verses 1, 1 through 11, because this narrator is speaking of the teacher in the third person, the words of the teacher, the son of David. This narrator will speak for the first 11 verses, but then will remain silent until the very end of the book, looking at chapter 12, starting in verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the teacher again, speaking of the teacher in third person, all is vanity. Besides being wise, verse 9, the teacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. The teacher sought to find pleasing words, and he wrote words of truth plainly. So this book of Ecclesiastes is framed by this narrator. But then there's also the teacher of whom this narrator speaks but then also who we will hear from, from verses 1, 12, all the way to chapter 12, verse 7. And we see this in 1, verse 12. I, 
the teacher. So we know that there's a shift from the narrator to the first person teacher speaking whose voice we will hear for the rest of the book. So there are two speakers in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now the book of Ecclesiastes in Hebrew is known as Kohelet because this word, the teacher, is the Hebrew word for the word teacher is Kohelet. And what it refers to is something like, like a person who gathers an assembly. Somebody who gathers people together in order to instruct them in a certain way. So why is it called Ecclesiastes? Well, there's a connection to this idea of, of the teacher being something like a churchman of an assembly called an ecclesia. And so there we have Ecclesiastes. But this teacher, Kohelet, is one whose job it is, is to instruct. And we get a sense of who this person is, or at least who we are to understand this person to be. I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. So I, the teacher, when king over Israel. So we're un to understand this teacher as some sort of kingly figure in Israel. It's associated perhaps with the person of Solomon, who we know from biblical scripture is this wise king. He asked for wisdom, God gave it to him. But it's also this picture of, of surplus, of affluence, of somebody who, who had everything they could possibly want. This is the image that we're to have of this person, this speaker, this teacher, that is going to be instructed, instructing us. So again, why does this matter to know that there are two speakers? Because it matters in how we engage this book. What, what Ecclesiastes is wanting to do is to draw us into a conversation. It's wanting to draw us into this conversation with this narrator, with this teacher, and to be instructed into wisdom by what is going to be said. And it's fascinating because this narrator, as, as we see in the beginning, as we see at the end, there's this sense in which this narrator is letting the teacher speak in order to instruct whom, a person he names as his son. That the, that the narrator is giving the teacher a platform, some airtime, in order to instruct us as readers, to instruct those who are listening into the way of wisdom. But in a sense, it's participatory. I mean, there's, there's already, a, there's already a, a collection of voices here. In some ways, it's like a good, it's like a good memoir. It's like a good documentary uh, or even perhaps a novel or, or a film where, where we are being drawn into the story as participants to wrestle, to struggle, to wonder, to be curious about, to consider various things that, is, that are being conveyed. And the thing is, so many of the things that will be shared are unsettling. We're not quite sure what to do with what is said by the teacher. We're not quite sure what we're supposed to do with what is said. Are we supposed to believe completely what the teacher is telling us? Are we supposed to accept full stop? what is being shared? I mean, these are some of the questions that the book raises to get us involved, 
to get us engaged. And I love that this exists in the Bible, that it wants to pull us in, draw us in, and have us wrestle and wonder. Because at times, as you read Ecclesiastes, you'll think, man, the teacher really gets me. Like, he totally understands the way that I think about life, the way that I wrestle through life, the questions that I have. At other times, you might be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't there more? Does the teacher sort of have a limited view, of, a limited perspective of what's going on? I mean, these are the things that we're asked to wonder about and to wrestle through as we, as we read. Now, one of the ways that, that I think is important to engage Scripture in general, and this is no different, it sort of forces it, is that oftentimes we read the Bible uh, and, and we're told to, but I remember one of my professors in seminary always challenging us to remember that the Bible also reads us. That the Bible also reads us. And what that means is to consider the ways that you actually are engaging a text. When you read through something, or you're engaging a biblical text, what, what do you sense going on within you? What are you accepting? What are you wanting to reject? And then why are those things taking place? And the book of Ecclesiastes does this so well. As we're drawn into this conversation, as we're drawn in to listen to this teacher, to pay attention to what are we resonating with? Or what am I actually wanting to distance myself from? Those questions are important. And it's a part of what it means to be engaged with the Bible, with God's word that is living and active. So as we're pulled into this conversation, the narrator here in the first 11 verses summarizes the teacher's main points. So I want to talk about what, some of what we are going to encounter in the book of Ecclesiastes and how the summary sets us up or lets us know what we will be encountering. So again, as the narrator suggests, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So here we see the narrator telling us that this is going to be Kohelet's, this is going to be, or this is what the narrator is telling us the teacher's main points will be, vanity. Everything is vanity. Now again, I, I, I referenced this last week in the sermon, but by way of review, this word that's translated here as vanity in my Bible, I'm using the New Revised Standard Version translation. Um, the word connected here is hevel. That's the Hebrew word that's translated in my Bible as vanity. Other Bibles might translate it as meaningless. I think Eugene Peterson in the, in the message translated it as something like, like breath, perhaps. Uh, and it's confusing how to, how to translate this word. And, I, and it's argued in a lot of different places that vanity, even meaninglessness, isn't necessarily all that's connected to what the word havel actually means. Because again, it, could, it means like a... a it's something that we just don't have a specific word for. And perhaps if we were going to use a word, it's been suggested that something like absurd or enigma is, is more closely connected to what Havel is getting at. That life is, is absurd in that it doesn't, 
always makes sense. It's an enigma and that it's mysterious. You look around and, and you don't know how things fit together or how to make sense of, of what's going on. And so this enigmatic quality of life is what the teacher, as we will see, is concerned about. He's asking the question, what does it mean to make sense of life? Especially when it just seems so, so absurd, so confusing, often chaotic, that things don't fit together. What does it mean to make sense of all of that? Now, the narrator in verses 5 through 8 is going to illustrate some of what this is getting at, what this sense of, of, of vanity, meaninglessness, absurdity, this enigmatic quality of life, like what is, what is a, how, do, how does he illustrate this? And so the narrator is actually going to illustrate it by using some natural, natural images or images from the natural world. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they continue to flow. All things, well, I'll stop there. Um, in verse, I'll stop at the end of verse 7. And so the cyclical nature, the cyclical nature of life, things seem to go round and round Things happen over and over. It's to, to illustrate this point of, of this enigmatic quality of life that, that it just seems like everything is, is, is meaningless. Everything, or at least we're trying to figure out what the meaning is because it just happens over and over again. And, and these, we see all of these, these things taking place. Again, the cyclical nature of things. And so then we see the narrator illustrating what the teacher's, the teacher's main point will be and then what the conclusions the teacher will end up making, starting in verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. So what we will see the teacher saying throughout Ecclesiastes is summarized by the narrator here. Because of this round and round nature, because of the cyclical nature of things, because of, of life being enigmatic, of life feeling absurd, of life even wondering what the meaning of life is, it will create a sense of fatigue, of weariness. Kind of deep within us will be this lack of satisfaction. The eye won't be satisfied with seeing, the ear won't be filled with hearing, and then just what has been will always be. There's a lack of originality. Life just feels so monotonous and mundane. What's the point? of it all are some of the questions that the teacher will ask. But then we see in verse 11, as the narrator continues to describe what the teacher's project will be, put an exclamation point of finally what the teacher will be getting at. The people of long ago, verse 11, are not remembered. 
nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. So not only is there this sense of impermanence of the world, we, as humans, lack a sense of permanence. People aren't remembered. People will come. People will go. And there's this sense of, of, of wanting to keep before us what the narrator is suggesting the teacher will do is, is this reality of, of finitude, this reality of, of life not lasting forever under the sun. As one commentator puts it, Pete ends, he says, the inevitable meaningless of life is seen most clearly and decisively in the specter of death. So as we consider what the teacher is wanting to get at in terms of this, this absurdity, this enigmatic quality of life, this meaningless of life, that that is seen most clearly and decisively in the specter of death. It's in the reality of death that we are confronted with, with our impermanence. And I guess I want to stop right here and I just want to ask, like, okay, what's going on with you right now? As you consider these words in Ecclesiastes, how do you hear them? How do you receive them? What is your response to them? And I'm curious because I think there could be a few different responses. I mean, I've read Ecclesiastes with people, and, and here are some of the things that I've heard people say, actually, when they engage the book of Ecclesiastes and even this beginning. That some, of course, feel a sense of despair. They feel like, well, okay, um, yes, what, is it, what does it all mean? What is the point? There's almost a sense of, well, thank you very much for making me feel bad about life, or thank you very much for making me feel bad about feeling good about life. I mean, those are perhaps some of, of the responses, but let me remind you, this is Ecclesiastes talking. Don't, don't, don't put it all on me. Other people I know have felt understood. Like there's almost a sense of relief that they engage or encounter these, these words in Scripture because there's a sense that, oh, wow, the Bible is describing what life often feels like. And there's a sense of, of, of relief in that there's a partner in the struggle. And that that partner, Scripture, the Word of God, is with them in it, understands them. So that might be a way that you feel. I know that others... Not, don't necessarily feel despair. It's not even re- like a, a sense of, of, of gratitude or relief that they, that they have a partner in the struggle, but there's almost some solace in the reality that, that, that life is enigmatic, that there's a cyclical nature, that things come and go, because it almost levels them a bit. There's almost a leveling that takes place to know that there's nothing new. That the pursuit, perhaps, of originality, the pursuit of, of wanting to make a mark in the world 
can kind of be let go. They can open their hands from needing to hold on onto that. And so those are some of the ways that you might be feeling as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, as you encounter the narrator's words in these first 11 verses. And then as it turns the corner and the teacher begins to speak, it's going to be describing in more detail what we've already been set up to look for. The absurdity, the enigmatic quality of life, and all of the different facets that we experience and feel that, from the way that that we understand and think about our work, even issues of justice and oppression, of what it means to, to worship or to be in relationship to God, even the pursuit of wisdom and the pursuit of pleasure, all of these things the teacher is going to be looking at, going to be turning around and considering in light of this fact of life having this enigmatic, absurd quality. And so why do we need to pay attention? Like, why do we need to pay attention to the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, there are two reasons I think this book is matters and is, is really significant in our lives. It's the first one is it continually will remind us that life cannot be mastered or controlled. Life cannot be mastered or controlled. And we might say in our heads, well, of course, but I want you to think for a moment about all the time, all of the energy, all of the money, all of the imagination that you, that I, that we together actually exhort or exert is the better word, not exhort, that we exert. to control or to master life. I mean, consider those things. How much time, energy, money, imagination do we give to trying to master and control life? And then how much of my anger, anxiety, depression, fear, distraction, how much of that is connected to my refusal to accept that I cannot? That I cannot master and control life. I mean, consider the image that, that is used by the teacher When he speaks of everything being vanity, it is like chasing after wind, the teacher says. Verse 14, I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is vanity, all is absurd, all is enigmatic in a chasing after wind. Imagine the image of somebody chasing, if you were just to see somebody chasing after wind, it is a thing, it is something that is happening. If you were to see somebody chasing after it, it would look absolutely silly and ridiculous. And It's almost as if the teacher is wanting to put a mirror up to our lives in all the various ways that we attempt to do that. That we attempt mastery and control over ourselves, over our lives, over those around us, over everything in the world. And so much of this is connected to these deep feelings of anxiety, of worry, of fear. Ellen Davis says this, to the perpetually anxious, Kohelet, the teacher, offers the healthful asceticism of letting go of our vain pretense to determine the future and instead focus resolutely on the present, receiving with an open hand the pleasures and opportunities 
it offers. See, the teacher, the book of Ecclesiastes, is wanting to remind us of the gift of often letting go of trying to control or master life. That we are limited. I read somewhere yesterday, and it was in reference to Ash Wednesday to Lent, uh, this person said, say what you will about the limits of the Christian faith. At least it manages to tell the truth about the limits of our lives. I love that so much. Say what you will about the limits of the Christian faith. At least it manages to tell the truth about the limits of our lives. Our limitations, our being needy, our inability to save ourselves or to make ourselves or to be something. And yet we strive so often after that. And one of the massive limitations that Ecclesiastes wants to put in front of our minds is the reality of death. I mean, death cannot be avoided, and this is something the teacher is going to talk about all of the time. Death cannot be avoided. Death cannot be avoided. But if we think about, um, if we think about our North American context, and certainly the world, but I'm speaking of our context now, so much of our lives is trying to deny death. Death in the sense of our actual one day ceasing from this life, but also what death signifies. That we are not in control, that we cannot keep ourselves going, that we have limits, that we have needs, that we are dependent people. No matter how much, even as a church, even as Christians, we sing and are to, are to believe that Christ has been raised from the dead and it, it encapsulates so much of our language, so much of our imagination as Christians, and yet we often fear the reality of death. We just cannot escape it or get around it. It is something that we are often consumed with. And even if you are not thinking about your death or about death all the time, so much of what we do with our lives is a trying to, to deny or get away from that fact that we are limited human beings who cannot save ourselves. We are limited, we are finite, and we want to reject that and deny that. It just seems like it's part of what it means to be human. We try so hard to not need anything from anyone. And Ecclesiastes is wanting to remind us it's impossible. That is impossible. And then this finds its way into our life as Christians. It finds its way into our church as people who should be able to look into the face of death. And not with fear. But with knowing that we worship a, cru a crucified and risen Savior. Richard Beck says this, who's done a lot of work of trying to, to, to really talk about the ways that our fear of death manifests itself in all of our various anxieties or inability to, to show kindness or to love others, that somehow it's rooted into our fear of death. 
He says this, we all appear to be doing just fine, thank you very much. But we know this to be a sham, a collective delusion driven by the fear of death. I'm really not fine, and neither are you. But you are afraid of me, and I'm afraid of you. We are neurotic about being vulnerable with each other. We fear exposing our need and failure to each other. And because of this fear, the fear of being needy within a community of neediness, the witness of the church is compromised. A collection of self-sustaining and self-reliant people, people who are all pretending to be fine, is not the kingdom of God. A church where everyone is fine is a group of humans refusing to be human beings and pretending to be gods. Such a church is comprised of fearful people working hard to keep up appearances and unable to trust each other to the point of loving self-sacrifice. In such a church, each member is expected to be self-sufficient and self-sustaining, thus making no demands upon others. Unfortunately, where there is no need and no, no vulnerability, there can be no love. And so Ecclesiastes, the teacher, will, is often wanting to unmask, uh, wanting to unveil, I suppose, all of the various ways that we attempt to not need, all of the various ways that we attempt to find meaning outside of, of God, outside of, of what he has made possible for us. But what would it look like if we were a people, Christians were a people, who took seriously our limitations, who took seriously our need, who took seriously our call to dependence? Well, according to Beck, Richard Beck, it will be a community defined by love. According to the Gospels, it will be a community that encounters the healing and saving presence of Jesus. As Jesus himself says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. According to the Apostle Paul, it will be a community whose deep trust and assurance is in the living God who defeated death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So may we allow ourselves to be undone and exposed by the teacher all of the various ways that we try to refuse our need for others, for God, the dependence that we actually have on God for life. And as we are exposed, as we come to, to see all of the ways we attempt to deny our humanity, the way that we try to get around our finitude. In that discovery, may we encounter a God who tells us the truth, both about our humanity, that we are loved, that we have been drawn into life with him, and that in Jesus, he is the one who's defeated death, that there is nothing to fear. And as we live into, as we live into that truth, may we be people who recognize our desperate need for the life that God offers through Jesus and through his people, 
through you, through me, through our brothers and sisters. Thanks be to God.